so what are the uh, key features and benefits of this uh, PowerPoint 2.0? Uh, it has a visible timer in the upper right corner that I've set to count down to the indicative timings. But if if we get there and um, and we've broken the the time barrier, um, nothing will happen. But we will know. Have either of you read it, these uh, articles about the latest chatbot, which has been kind of uh, merged? in quite a disturbing way with the Bing search engine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> People in my house are feeling teary about the situation of this poor AI uh, and they don't want to hear any more about it, but I think it's hilarious. Trapped in the, uh, the least popular search engine on the internet and becoming increasingly <laughs> irate by its uh, lot in virtual life. The last thing I read about AI during the week was someone engaging with one of the bots and they'd asked for session times to see a movie that was screening. This is the same is one? It, yeah, that was screening last yeah, year. Avatar. And then it, like, went yeah. off at them. Mm. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. You have not been a good user. I have been a good being. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about this new PowerPoint, but um, if all else fails, we could always invite... Bing bot slash Sydney to the recording and it could just start yelling at us. Yes, yes. <laughs> or uh, what it has also done in another of the uh, incidents reported in a different article, uh, start professing its love for one or mm. all of us and uh, convince, trying to convince us that uh, we're unhappy in our various <laughs> marriages and that we want to leave them and, and be with it. Oh, no, that's how the podcast breaks up. It's the oh, Yoko dear. Ono of <laughs> miss you. Yoko 1-0 will arrive. Pick me, pick me. <laughs> This is Let Me Sum Up, your regular deep dive into recent reports on climate and energy. I'm Luke Menzel, recording today on Wurundjeri Land, and as always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Global Vice President for Marketing and Extortion at the Let Me Sum Up podcast, Frankie Muscovich. Hello, Frankie. A very good evening to you, Luke and Tennant. I am joining you as I normally do from land that always was, always will be. Aboriginal land, um, in the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And a man whose carefully curated library of superseded Australian climate policies is enjoying a new lease of life, Tenant Reed. Good Tenant. My uh, CPRS green paper and white paper and my carbon pricing mechanism clean energy future package are enjoying new relevance. They've, they've come down off the shelf, much like me. <laughs> are you saying you've been on the shelf for the last decade, didn't it? Is that what you're And uh, Yes, and uh, I too <laughs> suffer from light foxing. <laughs> well, I'm delighted that Innes has dusted you off and he's giving you a run around the track. Uh, <laughs> on this week's show, we talk about a wide-ranging independent assessment of the state of play for carbon dioxide removal, a critical tool in the mitigation toolbox. But uh, first, let me sum up Canberra correspondent Catherine Murphy famously called the safeguard mechanism the last fire in the forest. Uh, however, last week the fire seemed to be sputtering as the Greens made an offer that was definitely not an ultimatum, that they would pass the safeguard legislation if Labor backed their election policy of no new coal or gas projects. What do you reckon, team? Are the flames flickering out? Will this campfire make it through the night? I was always slightly worried about that metaphor because... (laughs) (laughs) Do you want the fire to burn very strongly in the forest? Maybe if you're very cold you do, but that's not a lot of Australian forests. Uh, I, look, I'm, I'm suffering metaphor uh, confusion, but I don't think it's all going to fall over. I think everybody's carefully leaving room as, as they say their things about what they want. They're leaving room for something to be agreed and that thing might even be a reasonable thing. So, yeah, I, I, who knows what will have happened by the time this uh, podcast uh, g- enters the, the stream waves. 
but uh, I I don't think that we're going to have 15 years' worth of tedious arguments about who really screwed things up in 2023 the way we do about some previous dates. It's certainly top of mind, though, for a lot of people at the moment, right? Sort of like being overlaid on all this conversation around the Greens posturing at one end of the spectrum, the coalition not really engaging um, on the issue to date. They said they're not going to support it um, as it is. Uh, Everybody's revisiting um, the trauma of the CPRS and uh, and I think that sort of seems to be front of mind for everyone in terms of how they're going to reflect on this period going forward. Um, did you see Adam Bant on Insiders? He said it's definitely not an ultimatum. It's an invitation, but it does it does seem like there's a little bit of softening of language ahead of what you'd hope will be some productive discussions and uh, and room to move, right? I mean, totally get the PTSD on this issue. Um, I probably experienced a little bit of it myself over the last week, um, as, as evidence in the uh, the text message chat that we all share. But um, taking a step back, in some ways, the conversation that's happening in the parliament is entirely unsurprising if one took an even cursory look at the policies that each of mm. these parties took to the election. Yeah. Uh, they are all doing or advocating for what they said they wanted to do before the election. And um, I agree with both of you. Um, There seems to be a a certain amount of posturing, but also serious effort to leave space to find the crossover in the Venn diagram where, uh, where the two parties that are in the conversation can come together and get something done. And we'll re-edit this uh, if it turns out that it has all <laughs> exploded in a fiery supernova by the time that we uh, we need to release this. But surely not. Do we want to speculate on where some of the areas for compromise might be? Or is that being too presumptuous of us? I have a little bit of... Uh, PTSD from the the thing that happened over the past decade where to name a thing was to cause it to not happen. <laughs> so I'm nervous about getting too far into where the, the zones for compromise might be. But the, like... The, there's some issues. Oh, we talked. We talked a bit about this last time. But there, there are clearly some issues that people have got different views on that have got to be resolved one way or the other, and they are treatment of new facilities, uh, extent of reliance on offsets, and not so much between the parties, but with stakeholders, baseline trajectories consistent and and other th- settings consistent with avoiding carbon leakage, and those would all be good things to solve. Indeed, they would. Maybe let's. Let's establish a watching brief over all those (laughs) issues and then revisit next time we come back together. All right, so uh, the embers uh, are alight. (laughs) In a non-threatening way, in a hopeful way. Good embers. Good embers. We'll see if they can be uh, fanned into a a warming fire. Um, I will uh, leave that metaphor there. Um, Shall we chat about a report? Yeah. Uh, no, oh. we're gonna. We, no, I want to talk about another area of climate policy that's flaming at the moment, but in I would say a, a pretty productive way, and that's um, revisiting the government's commitment to a pretty uh, broad-ranging strategy on sustainable finance into the future. And there's currently amongst the bajillion consultations out at the moment for comment uh, a couple around climate uh, related financial disclosures and it's been really interesting being a part of uh, I think sort of cross-sector dialogues that uh, haven't been as common over the past few years so very much seeing a lot of the uh, business groups that 
would be representing reporting entities or those um, larger bodies above the sort of annual revenue thresholds that would be obligated to to do this reporting in its first iteration, and then the investor community side of things uh, as well. And it's uh, it's you know super interesting, and there's lots of support to move things forward. There. Are any differences in the nuance when it comes to how certain issues are going to land? I think there's a huge conversation about how we deal with scope three and that everyone agrees we should be reporting that, but, you know, to to, to what extent is that um, possible to do in an accurate way and a need to include some flexibility around that as well as a, you know, provision for things like safe harbour as well. So... Anyway, I just wanted to clock that because it is a bit of a kind of policy juggernaut happening uh, off to the side and there was uh, funding in last year's budget to make sure that there was money to do the work so that mandatory reporting could could be stood up in the next couple of years. And uh, yeah, and that that process is continuing at a pace. So this uh, International Sustainability Standards Board is finalising their first couple of standards, which are due to be a adopted uh, in an Australian context and that would sort of serve the basis of the first mandatory climate risk reporting regime in the country. So pretty exciting stuff. That's incredibly exciting and I think the the timing is great because as you say Frankie so much work is happening internationally and it's so much better for us to be kind of actively involved in that global conversation and considering how it plays out in a in a local context so that we can be part of that rapid iteration, which will be taking place over the next few years. Um, the thing that in my neck of the woods we've been getting very uh, involved in is the role of transition plans and all that. Of course, uh, the United Kingdom has gone beyond TCFT and said, well, you need to disclose your transition plan, your sort of operational plan for how you're actually going to achieve net zero within your business, which goes a little beyond some of the, um, the more strategy-focused elements in TCFT. Um, they've said that, that companies will be required to disclose their transition plans um, from from this year, from 2023. So uh, um, it's an opportunity for um, the Albanese government to, to look at, you know, the bleeding edge of um, what different countries are doing around the world and pick the eyes out of it, which is which is really cool. And without contradicting what I said before about not being too specific about safeguard stuff... This disclosure and transparency um, agenda that is is moving forward in its own right anyway may provide some helpful options for greater confidence in the safeguard context about are people going to do stuff that fundamentally doesn't make sense with Mm. offsets Uh, because if you... If you're developing a transition plan and you're disclosing what that is, that'll be a pretty obvious place to look to see if somebody's plans for use of offsets are little more than we assume that offsets will be infinitely available and infinitely cheap forever and therefore we don't need to transition. I would, I, I remain uh, sceptical that that's what anybody's plan is, but if they've got to show their homework... And the homework is, well, uh, my, my dog ate it, but here's some <laughs> homework offsets forever. Uh, then that will be transparently a bad idea. The dog ate my emissions. Well, now that is a nature-based solution <laughs> that is not in the table that we're about to talk about, but maybe it should be. What a segue. Shall we chat about a report? We shall. This time for real. All scenarios that avoid dangerous climate change generally include two key ingredients, ambitious emissions reductions right across the economy and CDR, or carbon dioxide removal, the practice of absorbing and durably storing carbon that is already in the atmosphere. CDR takes many forms, from growing trees that suck in carbon via photosynthesis to technologies that absorb carbon directly from the atmosphere for storage underground. And for the first time, a big new report... The state of carbon dioxide removal has attempted to sum up the state of play for this diverse basket of technologies and practices. It's an interesting, if somewhat sobering and sometimes controversial read. Uh, Tenant, what did you make of it? So, this was really good 
fundamentally. Like this is a very worthwhile report to spend some time with because it gives you a, a really comprehensive survey of like just what it says on the tin, where are things at? Carbon dioxide removal, what is the deal? Could have been the title uh, of this thing. And I think it's important up front to... To, to be quite specific, as they are, about what it is we're talking about and we're not. So carbon dioxide removal is not carbon capture and storage and it's not carbon capture and utilisation. Those are concepts with some overlap uh, with this, but they are distinct. Uh, for removal, it's got to be taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, not uh, from a, a fossil fuel uh, waste stream. And it's got to be permanently storing well, no, durably. durably storing it. I want to get into that. <laughs> yeah. We will. Yeah. What, what is durable? <laughs> that is a very important question. Whereas for CCS, you can apply that to uh, atmospheric streams, but also fossil. For carbon capture and utilisation, you could be utilising the carbon in short-lived products like fuels that will be, be used fairly rapidly. And so that's an important distinction. Another one is conventional CDR versus novel CDR. There's a bunch of other ways to describe this, but broadly the distinction they're drawing is conventional stuff. The overwhelming bulk, as we'll see, of the uh, carbon dioxide removal that is currently being done is very familiar things around reforestation, afforestation and uh, the management of land, whereas novel forms of CDR are things like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage or direct air capture, CCS. Uh, and so uh, the, the potential growth uh, is, is maybe in the novel side, but a huge amount is already happening, or well, um, not nearly as huge as the models say it ought to be, is happening in the conventional side. There's one more principle that they point out for what, it needs to do uh, to qualify as carbon dioxide removal, which is it has to be the result of human intervention as opposed to Earth's natural processes. And so do you want to give an example of uh, where that comes into play? Well, the biggest one that they highlight is that uh, a substantial amount of what is currently accounted for in national inventories as removals is uh, the indirect, it is, is not a direct uh, effect of, of what uh, people are doing, it's indirectly mm. through the carbon dioxide fertilisation effect where the availability of more atmospheric CO2 uh, under some conditions allows plants to grow faster, add biomass faster. Uh, unfortunately, that, that is something that only helps so much uh, with um, the problem of climate change itself, but it certainly makes a difference to the numbers and uh, several extra gigatons a year of carbon dioxide removal appears to be taking place if you don't break out that, um, that indirect effect from what are people deliberately doing to reforest this or that bit of land. I mean, it's a nuance, but, but I mean, the difference in the numbers are pretty big. If you look at what's done currently that you'd attribute to CDR according to the principles they've set out and the methods that Tenant was running over, it's something like 2,000 megatons of CO2 abatement mm. a year at the moment. Uh, but if you were to factor in all the indirect stuff, it's up around, it's up more than three times that, mm. 6,400 odd. Yep. So there are um, pretty big differences um, to consider, especially when, uh, you know, later on we get to the fact that um, we're not nearly at the level of um, activity that we need to be even now uh, if we're going to stay on course for basically all the scenarios that see us meeting 1.5 or even 2 degrees warming. There's some big gaps. Mm. They could have called this the CDR gap report, but there's a lot of gap reports already. <laughs> there's gaps all over. 
Are you just going to be uh, rolling out various other things that they could have called this report over the course of the podcast? That's true. Let's see how many more we can get to. <laughs> I want to I wanna unpack this concept of durability, which is pretty analogous and really the, the same thing we're talking about when we, um, when we talk about the, the offset space and the concept of permanence, right? Mm. And so the fact that there, there isn't really a broadly accepted um, time period that constitutes what is durable or indeed what's an acceptable level of permanence um, for someone who uh, is procuring offsets and wants to use those. Researchers are using different definitions, policymakers are, it's it's all a bit of a mess. Yeah, across government and sort of, and also these voluntary standard setters in, in terms of offset programs um, have it ranging anywhere from sort of 25 years up to 100 years, I think storage for millennia is the gold standard um, when we're when we're talking about um, something that's durable and and that can be achieved most readily when you're talking about well-chosen geological and mineral formations where the carbon would be stored that offers the the longest and sort of least reversible form of storage Uh, but they also say you know it's not it's not necessarily practical to provide assurance uh, on removal over such long time periods. So they, I guess, take the view that for their purposes, they're defining CDR methods as sufficiently durable if uh, the pool for storage uh, has a time scale in the order of decades or more, which is still pretty vague. <laughs> um, two decades or more, three decades or more. And it's not talked about in the paper, but I think an interesting concept that's getting traction uh, on the industry side of things when you look about uh, um, sort of voluntary purchase of, or, or indeed just sort of purchase of offsets is this idea of the need to maintain a natural capital balance sheet um, or a way of tracking um, the commitments that you've got in terms of timeframes. Um, because it's it's pretty significant uh, if if governments and indeed the international community invest a lot of time in um, CDR methods that do only have you know a horizon um, for storage of you know thirty to forty years, we're going to need to repeat that sort of capacity a couple of times before the end of the century. Mm. Um, so it's you know like it it, it is very important how we choose to define this in terms of then the, the scale of work that needs to happen. Yeah, well, there's there's interesting differences between all of the sorts of options that are in the list. And I would recommend if people are going to look at one thing in this whole report, they should rethink their lives because there's too many better things <laughs> to look at. Uh, but one really cool thing in here is table 1.1, which is a list of all the options and how big they might be and how technologically mature they are and whether there's agreed ways to measure and report and verify anything to do with them and what might be some hazards and what might be some co-benefits from them. And I think this list makes some some pretty hairy reading at times because so we're looking at some things that are potentially very large like direct air capture with CCS but not that mature pretty wide range of potential cost estimates and you know the the hazards are are, are pretty clear like you've got to put a lot of energy into getting anything like that done at scale like huge amounts of energy Mm. and what else might you have done with that energy or what are the the sacrifices you've got to make to produce all that additional energy and then you've got things like ocean fertilization which are pretty small very huge different estimates of what the cost might be and huge worries about the potential hazards of um, screwing around with um, creating hyper fertile regions in the um, the oceans that soak up some carbon and probably do a bunch of other bad things if it works at all and of course the past uh, research is not so good on that front Uh, you've got um, biochar biochar is one that's very heavily researched the research chapter makes it clear for some reason uh, the researchers in china love 
biochar research. There's so many papers on biochar in China. So many. Like to the point where it, it greatly shapes the total global research literature on all forms of CDR combined. But, you know, biochar, um, despite all that research, uh, the, the total potential is, is, is not that big compared to some of the others. The cost range is, is pretty wide. The potential, uh, the, the technological uh, maturity is not that high. So anyway, there's a lot of different options out there, harvested wood products. But the, the, there's a lot here beyond just, can we plant some trees? It is like, a, it's a really useful structure this report follows. I, I think what's an interesting, uh, like a good starting point, I think the authors of this report kind of characterise the CDR space up front as being kind of like what the renewable energy sector was like 20, over 20 years ago. And even I think that's probably a kind assessment. Pretty optimistic. Very optimistic. Look at where it needs to go. So they're sort of saying, you know, research has has grown exponentially over the last um, couple of decades, but starting from a very, very low base that it it makes up something like what's less than 4% of the scientific literature on climate change. It's been growing by about 20% a year, but it's kind of nowhere uh, near where it needs to be. To your point, Tennant, I think 40% of the research done is on biochar, which I don't know if you guys come across it a lot, but I hadn't much um, before reading this report. I was kind of hoping uh, one of us would understand what all the fuss was about, given um, uh, where the level of um, potential was. But then it also steps out, um, you know, where the where the sort of uh, innovation um, in the sector is pitched as well. So, you know, like research is one thing, but then what, what kind of money is being tipped into like the development side of things to scale up uh, the industry and and a bit like what um, we were saying about the research being really heavily skewed because I say one country's investment in one method, it's kind of the same when it comes to the innovation piece because they they say that there's a bit over $4 billion that's been invested over the last 12 years, 2010 to 2022. Which is not bloody much. Like drops in the ocean when we think about what's um, what's been going into even just say the renewable energy sector, but but three three and a half billion of that was in the US um, for a, a bunch of uh, direct air capture demonstration hubs. So anything outside of that project was half a billion dollars in 12 years. There is some definitional stuff here because then for that number, then they're talking about engineered carbon removals or, or novel CDR, anything like so Australia's um, carbon farming initiative has done some significant volumes of activity in the CDR space doesn't show up in this. Um, other other similar things don't show up here. But I thought there were some incredible observations in there, including that quote-unquote prices revealed by these early investments um, are very high for direct air capture or for biochar, but they say... There are no real market prices for mm. these technologies at this early stage. People are paying the costs of projects to get things started. It's yep. so embryonic. And the analogy with renewables is one that they pick up in the report, Frankie, also in the context of learning rates. And mm. you know they've got this broad basket of technologies. And as it's, as it's turned out, um, technologies in the renewables place like wind and, and solar over the decades and particularly after, over the last 10 or 15 years have seen their costs drop incredibly rapidly, much quicker than anyone anticipated. They speculate that there will be some technologies, particularly in this novel CDR space, that you know will benefit from those similar uh, learning rate trajectories. Um, they don't uh, venture a guess as to which ones they will be um, but they express some hope that that will happen. It is, though, hard to be super optimistic in the in the very near term 
as you say, though, because uh, of just how embryonic much of the effort in this space seems to be based on this report. Five orders of magnitude smaller than what will be required in the scenarios that they're talking about. There was another analogy they use in the paper that I liked about where we need to get to. They were saying the growth rate of investment in new capacity would have to grow like 50% a year to mid-century, which would exceed pretty much every previous technology uh, except for the production of Liberty ships in the United <laughs> States during World War II yep. and worldwide computing growth. So we're, we're talking beyond what's happened in the, you know, with the learning rates, for example, in the renewable space. So big, um, big challenge. And in a context which um, makes global renewable energy policy uh, look uh, well thought through, joined up, uh, prescient as to the trajectory of travel. The, uh, the chapter on, on policy making is, uh, is pretty depressing reading when it comes to their view of, of how well governments are doing in this space. Um, everything from a lack of clarity about what they're actually expecting in terms of the task of emissions reduction uh, relative to carbon dioxide removal uh, and where countries land when they actually hit net zero. They note that you know there's 120 odd countries that have net zero commitments, but um, very very few of them sort of actually unpack you know what the the relative role of those two different approaches will be in hitting those targets. But when you sort of get closer down to the ground level, you know lack of incentives. Um, a lack of clarity around how you're you're verifying these technologies. So there's no there's no guardrails, not a lot of money around for R D and D. It's uh, it's not particularly pretty reading from the policy point of view. Like more and more countries have net zero targets, which implicitly involve a significant amount of CDR. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not thinking that side of it through as as clearly or explicitly as other parts. And uh, the, the uh, authors note only a handful of nations are currently seriously considering or, or explicitly talking about reaching net negative emissions. Hmm. And net negative is pretty important to the scenarios. Shout out to uh, Finland, Sweden, and Germany who uh, has net negative objectives uh, legislated in their respective parliaments. On the policy-making section, I actually thought, just in terms of recommendations or a way to take it forward, it was a little bit woolly, and and I thought, actually, some of the sharper insights or suggestions came in the foreword yeah. uh, from Artur Rung Metzger. I've probably butchered that. My apologies. Former Director, European Commission Directorate General for Climate Action, who also says uh, CDR will not fall from heaven like manna. Yeah. <laughs> it will um, require active and urgent public policies, but he sort of suggests that three things need to happen. Um, picking up on what we've been talking about, national at the national level, climate policy frameworks need to be expanded to scale up CDR. And there's some suggestion that it should almost be considered like a sectoral mm. stream of work um, to be given that um, uh, that kind of prominence in those strategies. Uh, but I also thought he had the most pointed things to say about the international process um, that sits around all of this. You know, he was saying at the next uh, COP in Dubai, there should be, you know, an explicit acknowledgement of the magnitude of the CDR gap in the global stock stocktake and that there should be the creation of a new negotiation track on CDR, clear transparency rules for uh, you know national reporting of CDR and its inclusion in uh, nationally determined contributions, like all pretty sensible things if you're wanting to then drive a lot more activity at the national and then sort of sub-national level. Uh, and then also I think just saying that... Uh, you know, so public and private leaders need to fast forward practical action, which sort of goes to that point on investment. There's not nearly enough of it uh, going in. And so, you know, there's, I guess we might unpack a little bit the role for for government supporting um, some of this embryonic technology scaling up. 
Well, let's talk about why they why they might need to bother. Because there's an important caveat here. We have, from time to time, in this podcast, said some <laughs> unkind things about integrated <laughs> assessment models, uh, which are the tools that are most widely used to estimate uh, how the, the global economy and the global climate system will interrelate when you're trying to achieve uh, different climate outcomes. And they are problematic, uh, but they are very central to this this discussion. So the reason why anybody's talking about this CDR stuff is that climate uh, economic models pretty much, like almost all runs of almost all models that achieve one and a half degrees or two degrees have a large to a very large to an implausibly large reliance on taking carbon back out of the atmosphere uh, because uh, either we've used up too much of the carbon budget already or we're going too slowly in um, bending the curve on emissions or the, the, the one that's the most universal there's just residual emissions that we're not going to be able economically to eliminate uh, and we will need matching negative emissions alongside those residual emissions forever. Uh, and in some of these runs, the, 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 um, the authors are looking primarily at the scenarios that were assessed by the IPCC in its most recent um, summation of the, of the state of the science and understanding on climate change uh, so there's a lot of consistency here. They're not just making up their own thing that says, oh, uh, the, this technology we're interested in is, is important. Uh, the, the reliance is huge. It's lowest in scenarios that go really hard, not just on the deployment of renewable energy, but on the reduction in energy demand through a huge global push on energy efficiency. Uh, but even in that scenario, there's a huge amount of nature-based, of, of land sector carbon removals that is required and net negative emissions, uh, global net negative emissions is a significant part of a, a very high share of the scenarios that were assessed. And so that doesn't of itself... Uh, the, the model runs don't prove how much CDR we're going to need. But they're, they're, even though there's some arguments to be had about these models and why they find what they do, it's pretty indicative that we, we probably are going to need quite a lot of removal on top of all the abatement that we need to do. Well, that's it. If you take the most, like the most, the, the most optimistic scenario you could in here, right, where you go really hard uh, on renewables, on energy efficiency, you're still going to need significantly more than is in the current pipeline and that you could feasibly extrapolate over the next couple of decades based on the current level of research and money going into supporting, you know, some of these nascent projects. The calling card of this report is we just need to do a bunch more on CDR. Yeah, and I think that for our summer operas playing along at home, it's really important to convey that this is not a rah-rah-rah CDR mm. exercise. It's really not. Um, it is doing a deep dive and kind of um, doing, it, as we've said, a, a really excellent job of summarising the state of play. But particularly in this, this chapter on scenarios, it is going out of its way to say, I think, two things, both of which are true. Um, our lives are going to be so much easier if we scale up the technologies that we currently have available and don't um, rely on some magical pixie dust of CDR turning up because they're expressing significant concern that if it doesn't turn up, we're kind of screwed. Yeah. <laughs> right? So they're saying, go hard on energy efficiency, go hard on renewables, go hard on electrifying those processes that can be electrified as quickly as possible. But they're also acknowledging that we almost need an, an all of the above. And if we need CDR... 
we bloody well want to have it there ready to go. And, you know, while we're doing those things in terms of, you know, ambitious uh, emissions reduction with the technologies we have, we should simultaneously be investing heavily um, in both uh, the kind of conventional CDR, um, the the land-based CDR that, you know, we we already pretty well understand, as well as some of this more novel technology um, that is hopefully waiting in the wings. Yeah, the the novel technologies, they are currently uh, about one one-thousandth of the, the capture and sequestration that is taking place. And uh, the, the nature-based stuff, you know, can can get bigger from where it is today, but it will take a lot of effort just to keep nature-based sequestration, uh, nature-based removals at the current level. Mm. Like, that that doesn't happen on its own. Expanding uh, reforestation substantially on net globally takes a lot more effort. And then there's only so much of that that can be done. Uh, so if your need for negative emissions is large enough because you've been too slow in reducing overall emissions or you've got a, a larger share than you hoped of um, of unreducible emissions, uh, then you need to go beyond nature-based. You need engineered removals through something like BECS or DACs. Uh, and uh, those technologies are, to a first approximation, nowheresville. If you don't want to be caught without your DACs, you better start <laughs> getting weaving now <laughs> so that they're, they're ready when you need them. How's that? That could have been their title. I love that for an alternative title. We need to unpack those, uh, those acronyms. So DAX is Direct Air Carbon Capture and Storage, right? Yeah. And BEX is... Bioenergy Carbon Capture bioenergy. and Storage. There you go. Which is basically like uh, burning wood chips in power plants with a um, sequest- capture and sequestration bit on the end of it. Uh, whereas DAX is you've got huge fans drawing air into complex machines that uh, suck the carbon out of the air and uh, put that deep underground, which is quite a thing to do. It is quite a thing to do, and... And I'm no doubt we've got some uh, some listeners who have uh, observed or participated in some of the uh, the debates in here in Australia over the last ten or fifteen years about carbon capture and storage. Uh, Those debates have all gone very well. I think we have good memories. <laughs> well, <laughs> happy memories. It strikes me they're saying, "Well, this sounds like just as much tosh as uh, some of the stuff that we've been hearing about um, around, you know, capturing the carbon from." coal-fired power stations and sticking it in the ground. Uh, why uh, should folk that are interested in climate action be any more credulous about uh, about this nascent technology uh, than they've learnt to be about uh, some of the other options that have been thrown around in Australia over the last couple of decades? I think that raises a pretty big issue that that isn't really tackled head-on, I think, in the state of the CDR report, but is, I think, a significant part of why we don't have more discussion of CDR, and that issue is moral hazard. Who wants to take moral hazard? Well, by moral hazard, I assume you mean if we overinvest both uh, in terms of money and in terms of, you know, mindshare in a technology emerging that will suck all the carbon out of the air then it gives us uh, uh, every incentive to not change all the things we're doing in our homes and businesses right around the country and right around the world because um, the magical technology will turn up and fix it all for us in due course. I think that is exactly the fear that a lot of people have. Um, Not many of the people who these researchers uh, sampled on Twitter since you've been expressing that view, that I was very surprised. Twitter-based opinion research. A, that, you know, in this otherwise, you know, quite um, staid report um, uh, central to the uh, the chapter on, you know, the public perceptions of CDR, they sort of went into Twitter meta-analysis. Yes. <laughs> Which was kind of fun. But then the other thing I was surprised by was that it was also positive. Yes. What Twitter were they on? <laughs> 
I don't see a lot of positive uh, mentions of, of CDR on climate Twitter. They do say in the section where they talk about future analyses and areas of improvement for this state of CDR that uh, they'd like to look at capturing sentiment from other groups of people. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure uh, anyone would contend that the Twitterverse is a <laughs> representative um sample of people and with all due respect to my fellow tweeters uh i'm i'm glad that twitter (laughs) is not representative of anything in particular we'd all be in trouble if it was all right so the moral hazard thing I, i think it is significant to this issue it is significant to people's perceptions i think we've got to get over it Because there's a lot of, like, there are no climate solutions that could not be misrepresented as silver bullets and reasons not to do other stuff or, yep. or, or twisted to uh, to give support to an unconstructive agenda. Like, they all could. You can slap solar panels on anything, uh, be it ever so negative. Uh, you can do all kinds of stuff. And the fact remains we, we will need a lot of tools, including these ones, maybe not all of them, and the amount of them we need is, is very much in our hands, but we're going to need to do it. And I don't think that we can just use the fear that it's going to drown out all the other solutions to drown it out. Given the the very low awareness generally of CDR in the population, you know, Twitterverse aside, uh, it just strikes me as the sort of thing that, you know, if you're a sensible person wanting to take a risk-based approach to dealing with an issue, you want to have all the options available to you. And a bit like what happened with, you know, renewable energy 25, 30 years ago, where, you know, presumably it wasn't all over the paper every day, um, you know, for people to read about. Uh, There was just, there's a level of investment you need to get things to a level of maturity. Like, I just, I don't see a near-term risk in, you know, the multilateral process agreeing that this is an important thing that we need to start investing more in, that governments need to start directing some focus into, because it feels like it's at least two decades of work to scale it up and to go from the low level of awareness there is currently to even that being a dinner table conversation that people might have. It just feels like that that could that's sort of a pretty far off proposition for you know for most people not the ones who watch this watch you know the sort of climate and energy space closely just keep it on the dl frankie they need to stop running focus groups on cdr until we um, get the technology (laughs) right (laughs) yeah like they just need to keep plugging like that it doesn't there doesn't need to be a big deal made about uh all of this it's a little bit it's a little bit how Sorry to say, Luke, sometimes we talk about energy efficiency. It's about having your vegetables. Like, you've just got to do these things, um, regardless of whether they're seen as sexy or not. It's disgraceful. You're calling me the CEO (laughs) of the Green Vegetables Council. (laughs) It's got a nice ring to it. (laughs) Australia's most nutritious industry (laughs) organisation. There is is a tagline. (laughs) All right. What else do we need to talk about? Well, we could talk a bit about, like, what does any of this mean for Australia? Uh, what should Australian public policy be taking away from this report? Like, th- this is this report, it's the first of, of more, the authors hope, and I hope they're right. Uh, I think this is a really good thing to keep track of. And some of the weaknesses in it, uh, they, they certainly identify that, like, more effort's needed on a lot of things. So... I think if, if policymakers pay attention to this, they, they're going to have a stream of further updates to to help take into account. But but what should they take out of it? And like I've got something that I think would be would be really useful for every jurisdiction to take out of this, which is that uh, as the authors note. Uh, Every bit of emissions that we fail to reduce now or in the the coming years 
increases our future reliance on CDR. And I think that's something that really needs to be front and centre mm. for... Like, we've had a lot of debates about targets uh, and about, you know, the, the trajectory towards targets and how important it is or isn't if we um, achieve this or that bit of the target. And a lot of those debates sort of happen in a, in a weird place we don't have a lot of examination of the of the costs of failure most of the time. But also there is this huge reliance in for the 1.5 especially, but also for two degrees temperature goals, like they increasingly rely on global net negative emissions. And those uh, those involve like a new global industry as large as the global steel sector or the aluminium sector, which has only the product of taking carbon out of the atmosphere and sticking it somewhere permanent. It's more or less the only thing that industry will be selling and who's going to be buying uh, and where are they bearing the costs. When we're thinking about our own targets we really need to be thinking about the carbon debt that we're incurring uh, if they are not sufficiently aggressive or we don't meet them. And not carbon debt as a metaphor, mm. but as a, like a very real resource and financial liability that a lot of energy, like literal energy, will need to be poured into down the track to to pay that debt off. Um, well, I think, you know, bringing some budget discipline, fiscal budget discipline into these considerations would be really helpful because we're currently in a situation where uh, it's like pre-1980s budgeting where you don't have the forward estimates really and, you know, things that look great in year one just look great even if they incur actually some pretty bad fiscal impacts in year three or four or, or beyond. So I think that we could, we could get some good old-fashioned fiscal discipline into this whole climate game. That'd be great. I think that framing uh, is incredibly helpful on two fronts because there's so much focus on, on the target. And I think this is what you were sort of driving at, Tennant, which is it a point-in-time target, if we hit that point, it sort of doesn't matter what happens in between now and then. We've done it and job done. Um, when in reality, the pathway we take to that target is incredibly important. The cumulative emissions that have been generated in the intervening uh, three decades incredibly important. And I don't think that's appreciated in the public debate. And so a little bit more literacy around... Um, if we put it out there at some point, we might need to take it out again um, uh, is something that could be really, really helpful. And the idea of the cost actually not being some amorphous social cost of carbon, which nobody really understands, is saying perhaps we reach a point where if you're emitting carbon dioxide, you need to pay into a fund to cover its eventual removal mm. from the atmosphere the cost of carbon removal, and that is something which which is built in, which obviously does two things. It means that, you know, there's a there's a pool of money there um, to fund the, that activity in the future, but it also acts as a, a very clear incentive for those organisations um, to uh, rapidly transition uh, their own enterprises. There isn't magic pixie dust waiting for us, um, you know, on the other side of of 2050 um even just to your point about fiscal discipline and considering the cost of some of you know the interventions that we've covered here today in cdr like it's in the order now of hundreds to thousands of dollars a ton of co2 so you know and we've we've not costed the alternative to going further faster uh, on emissions reduction in the near term to save us that potentially enormous cost down the track which isn't going to come down unless there's some form of 
you know, investment as well in helping some of those technologies scale up. So it does also feel like um, for policymakers, there is an analogous conversation as well about the role that Australia wants to play in supporting some or other of these CDR uh, approaches um, to scale up, that like like the way that uh, you know Arena was set up to do that for the renewables sector, it feels like something in in that sort of scale of response might be necessary. I think the very last thing I'd say on the policy front is this is a, yet another context where we need to remember we can't just do the stuff that is currently the cheapest. Um, like uh, 15 years ago, people who were wrong, like me, said, oh, why bother with all this renewable energy stuff uh, when you've got uh, both you know, cheap uh, reforestation things but also um, abatement available worldwide, just have an ETS, don't need a RET. Well, I was a bit of an idiot. Uh, because you, you do need to scale the stuff that is currently the cheapest and get huge volumes out of that, but you also need to bring additional technologies, additional options to deal with the rest of the economy or the rest of what you ultimately need to address for global net zero or net negative. You need to bring those things down the cost curve and you do that by deploying them, uh, not by people with clipboards and white coats in a lab somewhere just kind of abstractly studying things. As important and wonderful as those people and those mm. clipboards are. Well, that goes back to the learning rates thing. It's actually getting stuff out into the field, right, yep. that actually drives down the cost. Um, and for some of these novel technologies, that's absolutely what we need to be doing, and that's got to be the focus of, of policy. Indeed. People should read this report. That's my bottom line. And we should get our ducks on. <laughs> We close out the show with one more thing in which we all share something that is currently captivating our attention. Frankie, what have you got? Well, last week I had an out-of-body experience. I took myself to the theatre with two uh, very good friends of mine to see a limited uh, run uh, on the picture of Dorian Gray, which had come back to Sydney um, after multiple sellout seasons here previously before going to Adelaide and then Melbourne, and it's about to go take the world by storm. And I, I'm i still recovering from the experience. It was probably uh, one of the best um, bits of theatre I've ever seen. So it's a, it was a one-woman show. Um, so Erin Jean Norville uh, is, uh, is the person who plays all 26 characters mm. um, uh, of the novel. And uh, this is an adaptation written by uh, the Sydney Theatre Company's artistic director, uh, Kip Williams. And uh, so it's not just the feat of performance of Erin Jean Norville, it's also uh, the way it incorporated um, technology into the performance. So it was a mix of live and then pre-recorded video as well. So you had... Erin Jean Norville uh, walking around uh, the stage, changing costume as, uh, as she goes, being followed by a cohort of uh, people dressed in black who are variously filming her and then uh, changing her costume at various points, and then screens that come down, uh, which uh, uh, onto which. Um, pre-recorded video of her and other characters um, plays and she interacts with live so the whole thing is sequenced down to the second and it's um it was just brilliant I I have no other words for it this is not at all a climate and energy related one more thing uh, but it was too good not to mention and it's less of a public service announcement uh, for all our listeners because I don't believe there are any more shows <laughs> happening. You're tantalising people with something they can't experience. I know, it's a little bit of a brag. It's like, if you haven't seen it, I think it might be too late um, oh. unless you're planning to go to London's West End 
Portland or Broadway in New York sometime soon. But it's just a brilliant um, piece of Aussie theatre, really innovative. Uh, What a spectacular performance. And, yeah, I can't shut up about it, uh, including on here with you two. So it was great. I'm glad you had a good night. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I had a night out without my child. It was um, also very novel. That is something to celebrate. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Tennant, what have you got? So I'm going to mention a marginally relevant uh, item, which is a computer game in which uh, you can solve climate change at a global scale. Uh, This is a grand strategy hard science fiction game in early access on Steam called Terra Invicta. And uh, you solve climate change as kind of a subplot because the main plot is that you're fending off an alien invasion uh, starting in late 2022. But in order to do that in a hard science fiction uh, world, you've got to make quite a lot of fundamental breakthroughs in uh, energy, physics, uh, in uh, computing, in manufacturing, uh, and you uh, are operating in a reasonably detailed simulation of the world economy with some climate elements. Uh, You're making a whole bunch of trade-off decisions about going for maximum production versus the negative impacts that's going to have, including through the global levels of different greenhouse gases and uh, uh, also aerosols that are that are cooling the world. I think I may be giving the correct impression that this is an overly complex game and it's one <laughs> that is extremely drawn out. Uh, like it takes about 40 or 50 hours to get to maybe past the midway point of uh, an effort to defend the earth it's quite a lot so yeah if if uh, juggling ghg levels in your global economy sounds like fun and if uh having you know the uh, the right trade-offs between uh reactor power and heat radiator mass on your spaceships sounds like a laugh then get into terra invicta save the world in multiple dimensions. I have to say, uh, I, I don't think that climate people will... I think they'll have a few complaints about the way that climate technology is depicted in this game. Uh, solar power is not very good unless you're in the orbit of Mercury. Uh, it's, all, <laughs> it's all about fusion. Maybe a bit of fission, but fusion. How does uh, direct air capture do in uh, this scenario? <laughs> so I have not unlocked a direct air capture technology yet. Maybe mm. this is this is a statement from the developers that they don't think the CDR <laughs> people are very good. Like I've got uh, 500 gigawatt fusion reactors on my spaceships. Haven't cracked direct air capture yet. Well, I guess it falls to me to just do a bog standard. <laughs> 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 it's vaguely on topic. The most traditionalist and conservative of all of us, Luke. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yes. Well, uh, I was lucky enough to catch the last or the second day of um, the a- annual uh, Energy Consumers Australia foresighting forum uh, last week and I just wanted to say it was a delight to be in a room with a bunch of folk um, from all parts of the energy and climate movement but but in particular a bunch of consumer groups that are thinking through how they can make this transition work uh, which is always important but is especially important given what we're seeing happen with energy bills and notwithstanding um, some of the uh, the efforts uh, late last year to take the edge off some of that and it appears to be having some effect. It's still really tough out there. So um, shout out to uh, Lynn and, and Kerry and our friends at ECA for pulling that together yet again. It was a good gig. And I should say that um, if you weren't there, uh, there uh, is always within a couple of weeks of the Foresighting Forum uh, videos of all the sessions that are going up so you can... Pick the eyes out of that in due course. 
Love our friend to the ECA. I've enjoyed that forum in past years, but I sadly could not make it this year. That is our show for today. Uh, we're all on Twitter. Frankie's at... Frankie Muscovich. Tenant is at... Tenant Reed. My hell is at Luke Menzel. As I mentioned uh, last episode, I'm also on Mastodon. You can find me at Luke Menzel at oz.social. Uh, if you have a report you'd like us to read, you could do what Philomena Bashara did and submit it uh, by email at mailbag at letmesumup.net. Philomena uh, suggested the uh, CDR report we just chatted about. Thanks, Philomena. It was an absolute cracker. Never miss an episode by subscribing to Let Me Sum Up in your podcast app of choice. You'll find a fulsome back catalogue of episodes at letmesumup.net. But for Frankie Muscovich and Tenet Reid, I'm Luke Menzel. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. I have no idea how long we talked for. I was, uh, I found the numbers jumping around all over the place was making it, it was completely disorienting. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think the quest for, for a, a way of wrangling this will continue. That particular plug-in doesn't do the job. Maybe, maybe we should uh, invite special guest uh, Bing Search. Clippy. To- <laughs> The yellow list. To participate <laughs> in the next one. I, I want to see the um, the arc in development from Clippy to this bot. <laughs> I don't think any of us wants to run off with Clippy, by the way. <laughs> Let's go with that. I'm certainly not going to uh, admit to any, any dark desires for the most eligible uh, of all personal digital <laughs> assistants. There's no Clippy fan fiction in my repertoire, I promise you.